So the scriptures are from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 16. That's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 16. So please, can I ask everyone to stand as we read the scripture? And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in a reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is the word of God. Hi again, New Hope, and thank you, Jay, for reading God's word to us. It's, again, it's, it's great to see all of you. Welcome in the name of Jesus to this gathering of his church to worship his name. You know, nothing captivates our imaginations quite like a great story can. I, I trust that we all like a good story. Now, you may, you may prefer stories in, uh, in movie form, or, or maybe you like comic books, or, or maybe, maybe you like to read novels, or you like episodic TV shows, or documentaries. Fact is, they all tell stories, don't they? All of them, they tell stories. And when they tell stories well, what they do is they immerse us into someone else's experience. They, and, and in doing that, these great stories can also show us something about ourselves, we learn about others, we learn about the world, and we learn about ourselves. Now, one thing I've come to learn about Jesus of Nazareth is that he was really, he was really great at telling stories. He knew how to tell them, and, and he knew the power behind stories as well. What we're going to do over the next two weeks is we're going to look at what might be the most famous story that Jesus ever told. For centuries, people have known it as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And it's a story about a young man who, who cashes out on his inheritance. He wastes his inheritance, and then he returns to his father, penniless, and his father welcomes him, and his father forgives him. What we're going to see over the next two weeks in this story about this son is that it's really not just a story about him. It's really a story about two sons. And we need to pay attention to both these sons if we're really going to, going to get the message of the story. So, so today we're going to look at the, the, the younger of these two sons. And the next week, God willing, we're going to look at the older of these two sons. Now this is a familiar story for some of us, maybe as... Uh, maybe as Jay was reading it to you, you, you kind of could predict what he was going to say next. You know how this story starts, and maybe you know how it ends. If it's new to you, then, then I'm, I'm excited for you because you get to hear this beautiful story for the first time. But if it's not new to you, I want, I want to I encourage you to not make the mistake of thinking you already know this story inside and out. Don't make that mistake. Instead, engage this story actively. 
Try to, try to envision the details as you hear them and read them. Think, think about the motives behind the actions of these characters. Think about the emotions and the, that they're experiencing. And if you do all that, I think you'll see that this story really has the power to, to comfort us. And it also has the power to convict us. In fact, what I would like you to do, and I'm going to invite you to do, is, is to try to locate yourself in this story. See, see if the details speak to your experiences. See if the details speak to your desires. Because like all of Jesus' parables, this story offers hope, and it also challenges us. It challenges our, our, our preconceived notions of God, and it can help you understand your relationship to him. Let me repeat that. This story can help you understand your relationship to God. So I'm going to ask you to join with me in praying that God will show us ourselves and show us Him in the words of this story. Oh, Father, that is our desire. Lord, we need you to open up our eyes, not just to see the beauty of this story, but to see the beauty of who you are in this story. Show us ourselves. Show us the heart of the Father. Shatter our preconceptions. And draw us to yourself in love. We're asking all this with confidence that you can do it. And we're trusting that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. I've heard it said that a good speaker um, knows his audience. And Jesus is a very good speaker. And Jesus knew his audience. He knew his audience inside and out. Jesus knew how to read a room. And so I want us to look at the room that he's speaking to when he tells this story. Look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them you got two groups of people here in the room, and Jesus is aware of both. In the ancient Jewish world, tax collectors were, were traitors. They, they exploited their own brothers and sisters for money. They had a reputation for being corrupt, selfish. And these people were hanging around Jesus. And so were other, quote-unquote, sinners, Luke says. These are, these are lawbreakers. Um, think maybe uh, uh, sex workers, pimps and prostitutes, thieves, addicts. They weren't, mind you, just in the crowds around Jesus. No, it says that he was drawing them near to him. It means he was sitting down at tables to eat with these people. He's getting to know these people and they're getting to know him. He's spending downtime with quote-unquote sinners. And that rubs the Pharisees and scribes the wrong way. That's, they're the other group there. And they are on the opposite end of the social spectrum, right? They, they, are, they are not the outcast. They are the most admired and most respected in their society. These were law keepers in contrast with the law breakers. These were rule enforcers. And they were outraged to see that this teacher from Nazareth, was, who claimed to be from God, he, he's sitting at tables with sinners. It's unheard of. They wouldn't do anything like that. And so Jesus scopes out all this, and, and, and based on who he sees in the room, 
he begins to tell a series of stories. And one of those stories is the one we're looking at today. And all of these stories, by the way, were directed at both those groups. Here's how our story starts. It's in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Now, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to keep stopping too often. I'll try not to, but, but we need to stop there. Because the, these opening words, I believe, pull at, the, at the, the emotions of those of us who are parents. There was a man who had two sons. Those opening lines are, are engaging for you if you have children. Especially if you know what's coming in the story. You know that there's going to be pain and there's going to be separation. I recently heard Pastor Charlie Dates say, quote, Any parent knows that to have children is to live with the perpetual risk of heartbreak. Any parent knows that to have children is to live with the perpetual risk of heartbreak because any parent knows that a child can bring happiness and grief. A, a child can bring joy and can bring deep anxiety. That's not just a comment on the child. That's a comment on us as parents. And the, the potential for heartbreak perhaps only grows as, as our kids grow. And, and they go from sitting on your knee to driving you to your knees in prayer. And maybe you, if you're a mom or a dad, you can hear yourself thinking, I've, I've given up everyone, everything for my children. You might even say to your children, I would give up anything for you. I would sacrifice all for you. I will provide for you everything that I can. No strings attached. And you say that to your children knowing that there's no guarantee that the love will necessarily be reciprocated at least not consistently. In fact, the love might not even sometimes be appreciated. So to be a parent, Pastor Dates goes on to say, is to live in the vulnerability of uncertain outcomes. And that was certainly the case for this father in Luke 15, whose younger son would one day say to him, Dad, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, I want my inheritance now. Now, those words would have shocked everyone in the room, no matter where they sat on the social spectrum. The scribes and the Pharisees would say, I can't believe it, that a son would say such a thing. Even the tax, <laughs> tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners would say, wow, that's cold. <laughs> I don't think I would even do that. We all know that to receive an inheritance, you generally have to wait until the person who's going to give it to you pass away, right? But, but this guy couldn't wait. In fact, when he asks for, for that inheritance now, what he's really telling his dad is, you are dead to me. I am more interested in what you can give me and in what you possess than I am in you. As far as I'm concerned, you're dead. You ever wonder what this young man was longing for in that moment? Like, what did he really want? Was it that he, the Bible doesn't really tell us. Did he want independence? Did he want freedom from restrictions and freedom from responsibility? 
We can't really know for sure, but as we, as we read the rest of the story, we, we certainly find out that, that like many of us, he wanted pleasure, that's for sure. And, and, and in fact, he wanted pleasure at someone else's expense. So what was he dreaming of? What was he after? If he lived in our day, would he be dreaming of, of the cars, the women, the luxury apartment he could one day live in? Overlooking Hudson, dreaming of the good life, whatever that might look like for him. And as I read this, it, it raised the question for me, what, what do I dream of? And so I want to ask you that question. What, what do you dream of? What have you been longing for? What's, what's the good life for you if you could have it? For what it's worth, this young man got tired of waiting for his dream life. So he says, give me what's coming to me. Literally, he's saying, give me my share of your life. That word for property or estate, it can mean substance. It could even mean your substance, your life. Give me my share of what's coming to me. I don't want you. I want the life you can offer me, the life that you can finance for me. And and look, New Hope Fellowship, that's this is what we need to see here. This is you, and this is me. When we want what God has to offer us, but we don't want God. It's us. Deuteronomy 10 says that the earth, with all that is in it, belongs to God. It's all his. So you and I are this younger brother when we feel entitled to the experiences and the relationships, and the stuff that this world has to offer. But we want to enjoy that without any connection to the Father who owns it. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, this younger son, he would have been entitled to one-third of the father's estate. And his older brother, since there are two of them, his older brother would be entitled to two-thirds of that estate. And that's going to be more important next week. We'll see why that matters. But for now, just see this. When this younger brother says that he wants his third of the estate right now, what's even more shocking is that the father complies. He could have disowned this boy, you realize. People would have at least expected this father to rebuke this son. What does he say? He says, okay, son. Okay. And and this father wouldn't have been able to just go to the family safe and take out some funds. He he can't just head down to the nearest chase branch to to withdraw the money. No, he, he had to sell off property. He had to break up what he owned. Up to one third of it would have to have been sold. He would would have to, to liquefy that and then hand it over to the son. And that's what he does. And we might ask, why in the world does he do that? Why didn't he just say no? And, and, and also, listeners in the, in the first century would have looked at this and said, wait a second, this son is also, he's, he's forsaking his responsibility to care for his parents in their old age. He's not just saying, I want my money. He's saying, I want my money and I'm out. I'm not going to be around to help you when you get older. Give me what's mine now. You're on your own. Again, you're dead to me. Why does he say yes? 
Oh, we don't know the motives of this man, but I do know this. God is showing us something vital here about himself. He's showing us that sometimes God will give you what you want, even when he knows that you're asking for the wrong things. He will sometimes give you what you want, even though he knows you're asking for the wrong thing. Sometimes God will let you go where he knows you will only find disappointment and pain. Some of you perhaps can look back at experiences in your life and say, yes, I can testify to that. Now, he never does this lightly. We're, we're meant to see here that, that what this cost the father to meet his son's request. It was hard and costly, but he did it anyway. It was a light decision. And, and then he watched his son a few days later gather up all that he now had that he had taken from his father and verse 13, head off into a far country. And so it is for us. God may watch you get set to gather up all your resources. He may watch you as you gather up all your experiences, all your gifts, everything that you have that he has given you so that you can head off and live for yourself. As you make decisions that center on you with little thought to his wise counsel, little thought to, to his presence in your life, he may just let you go. And it's not because he doesn't care. No, no. He sometimes gives you what you want so that you'll finally see that you're asking for the wrong things. He'll sometimes let you go so that you'll see that you're heading in the wrong place so that one day you will see that you're after the wrong things. This is a mercy of God wrapped up in what looks like, in this case, just a dad being indulgent in the story. Or from our case, when we look at it theologically, you might think that's God being harsh. Why would he let me go down that road if he knew it would hurt me? But wrapped up in what may look like indulgence or harshness is really mercy. Wise, wise mercy from God. The text says in verse 13 that this young man gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When we read a story like this, I, I really do think we need, to, we need to, to ask ourselves, what would this sound like to the people to whom Jesus was talking, right? How would they, and we've tried to do that, like how would they feel about hearing about a son like this? How would they react to hearing that a father would actually comply with these requests? We've got to put ourselves in their cultural shoes to the degree that we can and, and see things through their eyes. But it's also really helpful for us, I think, to bring all of this into our context. Look at it from our perspective. And ask, what would it look like today to, to, to take a journey into a far country and there squander one's property in reckless living? There are many different versions of reckless living, aren't there? I don't know what kind of reckless living you prefer or preferred. Where would one of us head off to? What would be the far country? Would it, would it be the West Coast or would it be further? Would it be the Caribbean would it be Hawaii? I know I'm mentioning all these warm climates. That probably speaks to my own sensibilities. But what would it be for you? It could be Alaska for all I know. What the text tells us is that he was far away enough that, that, that he became anonymous. He got to be anonymous and enjoy the freedom that comes with that. He was a foreigner now in a foreign land. And he chased pleasure. Again, that pleasure might look different for each of us. We have different tastes when it comes to what is pleasurable. I wonder what it would be for you. 
Would it be travel and adventure and good food? None of which in and of itself is bad at all, is it? I don't know. All we do know is that the pleasure he chased was expensive, (laughs) and Jesus called it reckless, foolish living. So in his case, it was destructive. In my imagination, maybe this is just because I grew up um, around church, and I heard a lot of people talk about this story growing up, but in my imagination, I always tend to place this guy in the club. I'm not sure. He's always in the club, in my thoughts. He's showing up in a high-performance sports car, the one with the, you know, the doors open up like this, and, and he's got a whole uh, crew, a whole, a, a whole squad, I guess, of, of newfound uh, companions. They're surrounding him, and I picture him popping bottles in a VIP section, roped off. He's, he's buying drinks, maybe even for the whole room. He's deciding who he'll spend the night with. And then he's waking up in the morning and starting over again. Now, maybe that's not your idea of pleasure. Maybe it wasn't his either, but you you can imagine it however you'd like. But whatever it was like, it was the life he had always dreamed of. And he got it. And there's that frightening word, though. It's that word squandered. Squandered. It means that the funds were running out. They were not limitless. In fact, they were running out faster than he imagined they would run out. Until verse 14 says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I don't know why, but that's always the line that gets me. That's the saddest line in the story as far as I can see. And no one gave him anything. Now here's something to think about. At some point, this young man must have realized that this lifestyle was not sustainable, right? Like he must have seen the signs that his accounts were, were, were bleeding, they were getting drained. So even before that first time he goes to, um, to, to lay down his American Express and it gets declined, even, even before he ever notices that his accounts are all at zero, there must have been instances when he noticed this is all heading in the wrong direction. Jesus is showing something to us about sin here. He's showing us something that maybe you already know. Sin is delusional. It leads us sometimes to to keep holding on, heading in the same direction, even when all indicators show us that this will not end well. And we stay the course. It's a delusionary power, delusionary power of, of, of sin, the deluding power of sin, I should say. Everyone else sees that this is going badly, but, but we don't want to see it. It's like the gambling addict who knows that they're running out of money, but they keep doubling down, keep doubling down, trusting that that somehow their fortunes will turn if they just keep at it. And this is often how sin works, isn't it? You hold on to whatever it is, that maybe it's an unwise relationship, and, and even when you see how harmful and dangerous it is, how toxic it is, you just keep holding on, and 
or, or, or you keep doing that thing, whatever that thing is, even when you see what, it, what harm it's doing to you and to others. Why? Why do you do it? Why did he, why didn't this son at some point earlier stop and say, let me cut my losses and go home or maybe find another job when the market's a little better and I don't have to end up feeding pigs in the middle of a famine? Why didn't he make that choice? I really don't know, but I think there's some reasons we sometimes will hesitate to make that choice. Maybe he feared that he wouldn't be welcome if he went back home. He was afraid of going back home because he didn't know if his father would really take him back. He doubted the father's grace. Maybe he was just too proud. He's like, I'm going to prove myself. I'm not going home a loser. I'm going to stick at this until I make it work. I've been dreaming about it my whole life. I can't give up now. Or maybe, maybe he just loved the life so much that he didn't want to give it up. That was me for the first 20-some-odd years of my life. (laughs) Things were not going well. But when it was good, it was good, and I loved it, and I didn't want to let it go. If going home to the Father meant leaving this behind, I was not ready. I would not do it. Such it is with this young man. He he kept doubling down. Now, I don't don't gamble myself, but I've seen that dynamic at work, how, how someone can stay at the table long after things have taken a turn for the worse, Right? Stay at, that, at, stay at that poker table, even though it's going badly. Or maybe, worst comes to worst, switch tables. Go, go to the crap table. Try the slots. Try something new. That's the younger brother. Persistent. Persistent and stubborn. And sin left them deluded, thinking that things would get better. And they never did. Listen, God will often bring losses into our lives to alert us to awaken us. If you're straying far from God and and you're taking losses, don't ignore those losses. Don't just hope they go away one day. Sometimes those losses are put there by God to alert you, to awaken you. Don't hit snooze. The sun is here in part to teach us that. I've heard it said that it's it's a, a wise person who learns from their mistakes, but an even wiser person learns from other people's mistakes. Learn from this younger son. He's here for us all to learn from. He ignored the alarms, the indicators that all was not well, that he was on a bad trajectory. But it took him losing everything. It it took disaster, financial, personal disaster, and a a, a regional calamity, a famine, a near-death experience to get him to pay attention. We don't need to be him. Well, finally, what happens is he finds himself alone. He's abandoned. He's desperate. And he takes this job, this job that he never thought he would take. Imagine this. For, for Jewish listeners, by the way, this is outlandish. This is another shocking detail. He went to work for a pig farmer, which means he's being employed by a non-Jew, a Gentile from a foreign land, doing what he should never, he would never imagine himself doing. His people never touched pigs. Now here he is caring for them, even envying them. He's so hungry he wants to eat their food, and he's not allowed. What kind of employer is this? Wouldn't even let him dip into the the pig food. Can you feel the the loneliness here? 
as he's, he's starving, by the way. He's not just sad. He says, I will perish from hunger here. And he's filthy and he's alone. And we're meant to feel the weight, the depression, and the desperation behind all of that. And it's only then, in verse 17, that when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? He's at the point of dying when he remembers his father's house. He remembers that his father's employers had it better than him. Maybe he never paid much attention to his, those employees and servants, but now he's looking back at them with envy. He's beginning to see what it is that he rejected. From that low, low vantage point, it, it all starts to get really clear for him. Here's something else that God's showing us about himself. Sometimes God will let things get worse for you, and he will let you keep descending. He will. I know this because the Bible tells me so, and I know it because it's happened in my own life, and I know some of your stories would also echo that truth. Sometimes he will let you get so low, so low, that you finally realize your condition. So you finally realize your need and, and realize that, that, that he can actually meet that need. You see, the father's house never looked so good as it did then in his imagination, as he remembered it. But it took him getting to that point. If, if you have not entrusted your life to Jesus, there may be many reasons for that, and I don't want to put this on you if it's not true, but, but I want you to consider it. For some of us, I wonder if it's because you haven't been disappointed enough. Now, maybe some of you have been disappointed deeply, and that's not a fair thing to say about you, but I will say this for some of us, and I'm not saying that your life has been easy. I'm not saying that you've never been hurt. You have. You've been hurt by relationships, by people. You've taken losses. You, you have not found the satisfaction that you so deeply desire in the, in the things that you used to dream of or that you still dream of. But maybe, just maybe, you're still doubling down, staying at the table, or maybe trying something else, moving to the other table, trying something new, anything to keep from going back home to the Father. And if that's the case, perhaps you haven't been disappointed enough. Perhaps you haven't been drained enough to, to come to yourself as this young man did. And I, I, I wish... I wish we all would come to ourselves. I wish that every last person in this room would know what it means to come to ourselves and see our state and then see God in his love ready to rescue and welcome. It's been my prayer this week. Lord, Lord, I prayed, I, I don't want the people that I love to suffer. <laughs> in fact, there are people in my life for whom I would rather suffer than to see them experience pain. 100%. But I know how you work, Lord. I know how you work. I trust you, and I know that sometimes, sometimes you will bring us low. And if that's your will, Lord, then bring the people I love low. If that's what it takes to finally see themselves and see you and see your love, Lord, bring me low if I'm losing sight who you are and why I'm here. 
And I'm starting to love the things that you have for me and give me more than I love you. Bring me low. Bring me to the end of myself. My prayer is that you would do this for the people we love. I know some of you are praying the same thing. That's what happened to the son. That's what happened. Verse 18 says, he said, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the plan that he comes up with. And it seems like a pretty good plan, doesn't it? These are the words of someone who's coming to their senses, but they still haven't seen the depths of the father's love. They see their own shame. They see how bad they've screwed up. They see their own guilt, but they have yet to see the Father's grace. They don't see in that clear yet, but they will. He will. At this point, he's wrapped up with, with, with guilt and with shame and regret. So he's hoping he can actually make things right. You see that? He's saying, I can go back and I can try to fix this. I'll go back to my father and I'll tell him I don't deserve to be your son. Maybe you read that and you're like, yeah, you really don't. Your father didn't feel that way. He's saying, maybe, maybe I'll just say, I'll work for you. I'll work hard for you. Let me try to pay off what, what I took from you. You see, he's, he's ready to confess. He's not making excuses. He's repenting. He's, he's turning and going back home. That's what repentance is. But he's about to be blown away by what he, what he, what he experiences. What he encounters, verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still, look at this, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And what did he feel? He felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, notice the father doesn't even respond. He's not talking to the son. He's talking to the servants. Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a scene, church. What a scene. Do you see the sun there, the, the filth? Try to picture it, the, 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 the filthy, famished sun. He, he can barely stand and walk in the wind. He, he, he's lost a ton of weight. He's been beaten down and shamed by life and by his own decisions, by people who didn't care about him. You notice, right? You notice that the companions disappeared as soon as the as soon as the money did and the cash flow did. He had left this place loaded. I wonder if he thought about that, if you remember the last time he was there on his father's property, he was leaving with all that stuff that he had gathered, all the money. But now he's returning with nothing, empty-handed. In fact, he's barefoot, it seems. And he's barely even alive. And he sees his father's house from, from way far off. And, and I trust that in that moment, it looked like home to him. 
It, it looked like safety. It was like an oasis. Could it be that he was really going back there? And he's thinking, maybe I can live in the servants' quarters. I've never even been in the servants' quarters, but it must be better than where I was, he's thinking. And the father spots him. The father spots him from far away, and somehow, somehow the father recognizes his boy. I wonder how you would respond. Mothers, fathers, future mothers and fathers. Those of you who are not mothers and fathers, how, I wonder how you would respond. Consider for a moment, consider the damage this, this guy had, had done. Consider the trauma experienced by the family because of the decisions that he made. Imagine the pain and the worry and the hurt. What would you feel? Maybe, maybe you would feel sympathy, but, but it, maybe it would be mixed with some anger, some resentment, right? Like a, a complex mixture of all those things. The father's feelings are communicated to us quite simply. It says he was filled with compassion. Filled. Filled. Not half compassion, half suspicion. Not one-third compassion, one-third suspicion, and one-third anger, righteous anger. No, he's filled. All compassion. And so this Jewish man, this patriarch, he, he does another unthinkable thing. He, he pulls up his long robe. That's what he would have had to do. Because you know, it's long. Get it, get it pulled up, tie it up, reveal his legs. That's very shameful, by the way, for him. Old men didn't run in this time, by the way. Everyone agrees on this. Old men in the ancient Near East did not run, not just because it was dangerous or, or it wasn't safe for them to run, but, but it was shameful. Kids run, not old men. I made a mistake. Yeah, last night I was at the park with my kids, and my teenage children challenged me to a race. And like a 21st century father, I had to take the challenge, and I raced them. We sprinted, and... Um, it felt fine, and then I woke up this morning. I haven't even told them, but I feel like my hamstrings are going to snap at any moment. I trust this father maybe felt a little bit like that the next day after eating the fatted calf. He's like, my stomach is bothering me, and my legs, oh my goodness, my legs. I can barely move, but it was worth it, he says. It was worth it. He launches out after the son. Literally, what it says is that he fell on his son's neck. In a good way. He threw his arms around his son's neck and he embraced him and he kissed him. And then his son, and by the way, his son is defiled. Remember, he's been hanging out with pigs. This is defiling for the father to even make contact with him. The father's okay with that. And so the son launches into his speech. He starts saying, well, well, well I, father, I know I've sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be your, your son. And he cuts him off. He says, bring me the best robe, quickly, put it on him. And then he covers his son with the best designer coat in the closet. And he puts the family ring on him. That family ring, that ring that says, you belong here. It's got the insignia on it that says, you're a part of this family. You're a part of this household. You're not on staff. You're not a slave. Gives him shoes, too. Because my son can't walk around barefoot. Put put some... (laughs) Put some Jordans or something on, on this young man. And he says, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Verse 23, and they bring the fatted calf and kill it. This is special. This is special. For this my son was dead and is alive 
again. This is overboard. This is extravagant. But you know why it makes sense? Because his son was dead and is now alive. Those are powerful words. You see, according to the father, his son was lost, but not just lost. His son had made some mistakes, but it goes way beyond that. He says, my son was dead. Really? He was dead. And here's why that makes sense. Because separation from God is death. Separation from the father is the definition of death. So, so when we say to God, and this is the irony of all this, when we say to God in our pride, you're dead to me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. We are the ones who actually die. He continues to live and has always lived. But it's that rejection of God. It's that rejection of God that brought humanity into alienation from God. It brought death into the world. So that we are born in this state of death. We're born in the state of spiritual death apart from God because of sin. But if we return to him, if we humble ourselves, if, if we confess our sins and, and come back to him like the son did, and we don't even need to bargain the way he did, he got that wrong. He didn't realize. He underestimated the father's love. But we, get the, we, we have the benefit of reading the story first. And we have the benefit of looking back to a cross where the son of God died for us. So we don't need to make any offers to make up for what we've done, pay off the debt. No, we know. We know if you've read your Bible and you read the story, you know the father comes to you and says, I've absorbed the debt. I paid for it. God himself became a son, took the form of a human son, and died on the cross. Why? Because he was filled with compassion. Filled with compassion for people that wanted nothing to do with him and wanted everything he had to offer. And this father will run out to embrace you, and he will celebrate your homecoming, and he will welcome and cover you with love, and he will offer you the status of son, whether you think you deserve it or not, you may think you're unworthy of that. That's okay. He's still going to make you his son. That's the promise of the gospel for, for anyone, for sinners of every kind, sinners like me and sinners like you, all sorts. It's the promise of the gospel for, for people who have willfully rejected God. And it's even the promise for those of us who, who have claimed to love God, but, but we find ourselves at times living for ourselves as if God were dead to us. We waver. The promise of the gospel is come home and find welcome. Come home and eat. The only place, really, that, that you and I can ever find life is in the Father's house. You see, life for this young man was only to be found in the Father's house. And so the message to us is to come home. Because not, not, nothing we've done disqualifies, nothing you've done disqualifies you. He's ready to embrace you. He's going to clothe you. He's, going to, he's, going to, he's got a table set for you waiting with a place for you to feast. And he actually wants you there. We hear this story. Yeah, there's rebuke in there for those Pharisees who are grumbling that Jesus hung out with sinners. We'll get to that next week. But right now, what I want us to see is in this story, there's an invitation to find in the Father the welcome, the approval, 
the love that satisfies. Please pray with me. Father, you know where each of us is right now. As you look upon each person in this room and, and, and perhaps even streaming this service, You know what, what far-off land some of us have, have, have wandered off to, maybe sprinted and fled off to. And, and perhaps, Lord, some, for some of us, you've let us go a particular way, even though you know there's, there's going to be pain and disappointment there. Lord, give, give the people in this room the ability to see those signs and respond to those alarms and come home to you. Perhaps for some, Lord, they're, they're on the fence and they're, they're, they're seeing, Lord, they're seeing that, that things are not panning out the way they expected and they're tempted to just keep doubling down and doubling down and looking for satisfaction outside of you. Would you please have mercy? Bring them to themselves. This is what we desire, Lord. We all need to be brought to ourselves. Please do this. Bring them home. Bring them home to find a father who's not going to look and say, you finally were too late. No, a father who will celebrate and meet us and embrace us and cover us with love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.